Well, if you're visiting with us today, I'm Del Trapp, said the senior pastor. Uh, congratulations. Over the last 36 hours, you've survived an earthquake, a dust storm, thunderstorm, and another dust storm, and maybe another thunderstorm. So congratulations, you, you made it. The, the worst part's over with, okay? Uh, we're going to be in uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 20, 41 through 46 today. So if you want to turn with me there in your Bibles, uh, I want to give you a couple of modern, I guess we would call them proverbs or truisms to think about today. The first one is seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. You've heard that before. Many of us who are those pragmatic types will say that, hey, I need to see it. Seeing is believing. Or you've heard that we see only what we want to see. You might have heard that before. And, and that's been true of all of us at one time or another. We see only what we want to see. Both statements are definitely truisms that we've heard and, and maybe apply to us. But are they accurate? Are, are they true, mostly? Well, yes and no. You see, our brains and not our eyes are the final arbiter of what we see read, smell, hear, touch. But our brains can be deceived, right? We, we can uh, fall prey to illusion, to deception. Uh, we can fall prey to self-delusion or self-deception. And so we need to understand that when we are deceived in what we see or what we think we see, it can be internal or external. Sometimes it can be both. And we can fall prey to an external deception that we want to believe. Now, as we go into a situation expecting to see something, science has proven time and time again, sociologists and psychologists have, have demonstrated this to us through experiments, that we will usually see what we want to see. If we expect something, then we will most likely see it. For example, best one I could think of, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people uh, every year travel to Loch Ness in Scotland. And why are they going to Loch Ness? They're going to Loch Ness to see the Loch Ness monster. And it's incredible. People travel. They go thousands of miles. They go this great distance. And they arrive at this lake expecting to see this monster. And sure enough, what do they see? Most claim to see Loch Ness if they travel, the Loch Ness monster, if they travel there to see him. They'll see a ripple or a log or a wave. And they'll see something that's not actually present. We have a remarkable ability to see what we want to see and then to not see what's truly present. Here's the thing. Spiritually, we are the same way. Spiritually, we can behave in the same manner. Spiritually, we cannot see what is there and we can see what's not there. So to remind you where we're at, we are in the Passion Week. Jesus Christ has, has entered into Jerusalem. He's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. He's just days from the cross, and he's spending his days pouring into his disciples and pouring into the crowd. Now, in the text, he has just completed the telling of three parables in dealing with three testing questions from his opponents that are trying to take him down. And the question all revolves around authority. Specifically, who has authority? What authority does Jesus have? And, and why didn't he come and get it from the council? Let me direct your attention back to verses 23, uh, to verse 23 in Matthew 21. And this is where the entire argument and debate began. Verse 23 of Matthew 21 says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? 
The idea being that they were the ones who bestowed authority, and Jesus did not come to get it from them. And that is their issue with Jesus. They want to control him. They want Jesus to recognize their authority. Now, as Matthew is writing this text, he wants to encourage future disciples that Jesus is who he said he is, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt, according to prophecy, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew also wants to teach this generation of disciples what the Messiah taught. Now, inside of this text, Jesus presents this clear contrast consistently throughout his ministry between real fruit-producing faith and dead faith, or fake faith, or pretend faith. And so today, he's going to go on offense, and he's going to issue a challenge of his own. And the big idea that we're anchoring to is this. Recognizing Christ in our lives means submitting to his spirit-revealed authority. Look with me at Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, where are we at? Let's let's just get the lay of the land. Remember, physically, Jesus is in the temple's outer courts. And what did Jesus do just days before? He cleared out those courts. He he kicked out the money changers. He kicked out those selling sacrifices. And just prior to that, he entered into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy. Both of the actions, the clearing of the court and the triumphal entry, are the actions of Messiah. Everyone recognized this. Now, Jesus is teaching to these crowds throughout the day, and he's returning to Bethany by night, but also present as Jesus is teaching, watching kind of at the back. They're they're the ones, you know, kind of trying to get in his line of sight, trying to stare him down, are his opponents, the council representatives. And who does that include? Well, it includes the high priests decked out in their, their priestly garb. Everyone knows who they are. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the followers of Herod, as well as other important figures. They are all there with the crowd and with the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, it has not gone well for them. These opponents of Jesus just lost a debate in epic fashion in front of those people they hope to influence and lead. And they really have nothing left to say, and so they're trying to figure it out. They're they're kind of milling around and mulling around the crowd, maybe talking, and they're trying to process what they heard from Jesus. And let me remind you what Jesus told them. Back in verse 21, They hear from Jesus that they are stealing from God by their disobedience. That they are actually stealing from God. They were supposed to give to God, worship God, give Him everything. And instead of that, they were stealing from God, back in verse 21. And Jesus tells them in verse 29 that they do not understand. That means they don't have a heart knowledge, an ability to apply the Scriptures. Nor do they have the resurrection of power of God in their lives. He tells them that in verse 29. And then verses 37 through 38, 
Jesus unpacks the heart of the law and the heart of God for them, which is we love God. God's people love God by loving others. It's what we do. So as the opponents are standing together and they're processing this and they're thinking about this, and they're thinking, well, what can we do? What's the next approach we should take? Jesus decides to go on offense, and he poses a question to them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, at this point, they're going, I think we got this one, guys. I mean, to to these prestigious and highly educated Pharisees, the question was like a three-foot putt. It's like, hey, what color is the sky? Like that type of a question. That's what they're thinking. And so with confidence, the response comes quickly, the son of David. Now, the answer is telling in many respects about the entire uh, nature of what the people of Israel thought about Messiah. The son of David is the historical and cultural name for Messiah. So it's no surprise that they would have responded in this way. Matthew makes the point himself back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He starts off his book by saying that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And the point of Matthew, Jesus is Messiah. So, of course, everyone is going to think this, everyone watching the dialogue, everyone reading these words for the initial writing of Matthew would understand the Messiah is the son of David. But the Pharisees' actions throughout Matthew and the other Gospels show that they think Messiah is just a man. A special man, yes, but a man all the same. And so as a man, he would be subject to all of the emotions and all of the temptations of other men. He would be influenced by power. He would be someone who put his hope in the mechanisms that they would understand to control things. And so they hoped and planned for a Messiah that would be controllable, that would be political, that would be able to be influenced by them. Now, Jesus is fully human, yes. But as we'll see in a moment from the words of Jesus' own mouth, he is so much more. And so Jesus lays his trap, and then he asks his question, and the Pharisees fall right into it. Now, the Pharisees, when they heard the question and when they gave the response, and they're probably looking at Jesus as he pauses for a moment, sigh in relief. Right? They're thinking, now, now we can get in the game. Now, now we're back in it. See, we, we've, we've just exercised a little of authority in front of this crowd. They're going to start listening to us, and we can get back to this authority issue. They see what they want to see in Jesus and in their own response. And the problem they have is that they believe their visual viewpoint is reality when in fact it's not. Now, let's pause for a moment. Jesus has he's asked this question of the Pharisees, but I want us to think about it. What about us? Do we see the Jesus Christ of Scripture in our own faith walk? Or do we see a Jesus similar to what the Pharisees see? Someone who is human, someone who is controllable, someone who's subject to all the same weaknesses that we are. The question boils down again to authority. If we are in the Word, and if we are training our hearts to look for the Jesus of Scripture... We will obey and recognize him when we meet him. If we are not in the word, if we are not obeying God, we will then create a Jesus of our own imagination. We do it all the time. This Jesus of our own imagination, what does he look like? Well, he looks like someone that we hope will meet all of our human wants instead of our actual spiritual needs. Jesus came to meet our spiritual needs. 
Our greatest need as, as human beings on planet Earth on this side of Genesis chapter 3 is to recognize the Jesus Christ of Scripture who can save us from our sins and to obey and follow him. But we don't like that sometimes. We get stiff necks. And so we try to create another Jesus that we want to follow. And this Jesus, this mythical Jesus, this unicorn Jesus, looks nothing like the Jesus Christ of Scripture. The Jesus we create doesn't ask us to do the hard things. The Jesus we create is very focused on us instead of God's glory in the mission. We have to ask ourselves, which Jesus are we following? Now, let's look at the next section, verses 43 through 45, and let me read this for you again. So Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, so that sigh of relief that we all heard in the text from the Pharisees lasted long enough for Jesus to take another breath and start talking again. Okay, Jesus opens his mouth, he starts speaking, and he starts quoting Scripture to the Pharisees. If you are an opponent of Jesus Christ, and he starts quoting Scripture to you, the chances are solid that things are not going well for you. And they are not in this text. It's about to get worse for them. And so what does Jesus do? The first thing he does is he references a scripture. He references 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, verse 2. He doesn't quote it, but it's a reference and a well-known reference amongst everyone uh, who was a Jewish background believer who was in the Jewish faith during this time period. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, that's what Jesus is referring to when he said, David speaking in the Spirit says this. You see, David, King David, the David of the Old Testament, is a prophet. And as a prophet, as a prophet of God, he speaks the words of God truthfully. And so Jesus interacts with this statement from David. And, and David is making this song, because it, it comes from a song or a poem, uh, on his deathbed. It's from David's deathbed. And as David quotes these words, he is affirming that he is a spirit-led prophet of God. If we were to go through the rest of chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, we would also see that David is thinking about the covenant that God made with him. On his deathbed, he's thinking about this covenant because that covenant says that David will always have a descendant on his throne. And David's thinking through Messiah, messianic language. And so in the spirit, as Jesus quotes from this, this is what's on his mind. This is what would be brought to all the minds of all the listeners in that time period in the crowd. And so the truthfulness of what David is writing about is prophetic. Thus, when he writes his psalms that we see throughout the book of Psalms, when he pens those things, they are the prophetic word of God. And so Jesus then goes into another quotation. He quotes a psalm of David after establishing his prophetic authority, which everyone would have agreed with. He says, hey, guys, listen to Psalm 110, verse 1. Okay, and that's what he quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But then Jesus follows with an interpretive question. He says, if David calls the Messiah Lord, how then can he be his son? Now, the unstated implication is this. This is not the way royalty worked, especially during this time frame and during this season. 
You didn't see Caesar elevating one of his sons to be his lord, right? That didn't happen. That didn't occur. That's not the way kingship worked during this time. And so, so we have this, this picture now of, of David calling someone who's to be his descendant Lord. So, so there's someone of higher authority here, God, in the psalm, speaking to this other individual who is Messiah. And this other individual is sitting with God. And so we know from, from Exodus that there can be no other gods but God. So somehow this person is divine and on an equal plane with God. This is mind-blowing to the Pharisees. You, you see, we're looking at this 2,000 years later, and we, of course, go, well, that's Jesus. He's there saying it. Of course, you should have known that. This is the first time that they ever heard this. This was an earth-shattering revelation. They had never thought this through. The implication is that Messiah is the son of David, yes, but Messiah is also divine, son of God. So then the Messiah, if the Pharisees think this through, then they go, wait a second, and that means the Messiah will never be under the influence or control of man. And this is true according to the rest of Psalm 110. It will be exactly the opposite. You see, Psalm 110 verse 2 says that Messiah will be a ruler. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. You do not want to be an enemy of this divine Messiah or oppose him because he's going to crush you. And that's just the way it is. They don't want to hear that. The Messiah is also a priest, according to Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is referring back to that scene from Genesis where Abraham meets the king of Salem. He's a priest of the Most High God. He is also Melchizedek. That's his name. And Abraham gives a tenth to him, a tenth of the spoils from the battle that he came from. He recognizes him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the order of this priesthood never ends, and it is the order of the priesthood of Messiah himself. The problem here is if Messiah is a priest and he's interceding for his people, then the high priests are no longer needed. That's a problem, right? Because they don't want to give up power. They, want to, they don't want to give up prestige. They want to, they don't want to give up influence but they are no longer needed because Messiah will intercede for man before God. But we also see that the Messiah is a judge. In Psalm 110, verse 6, it says, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The Messiah is not sharing his power. The Messiah is wielding his power. He's not going to share it with these guys, the, the, the council, the representatives, the Pharisees, the scribes, any of them. They get none. They get zero. God's people follow him. They bow to the king. Jesus explains very briefly that the Messiah is son of David, but he's so much more. He is God's Christ, and he is divine, the son of David and the son of God. Now, we go back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This happened. This is the reality now. That's where Jesus is. The deacon Stephen in Acts saw this vision. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, just before his martyrdom, we read about, about Stephen looking up into heaven. It says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, does that sound like Psalm 110 verse 1? Yes. Yes, it does. This is the reality of where Jesus Christ is now. The fact that he's standing up, sitting down, doing things, he's active. Jesus is there interceding for us, for his people now. This is reality for us. The point Jesus just made, the point that Jesus just made, that he is the divine Messiah, son of God, son of man, is the point that Matthew is aiming for throughout his entire book. It's how he opened up his gospels, his gospel, as I said a moment ago, in chapter 1, verse 1. But then we also need to, to remember chapter 1, verse 21. Let me read both of those verses for you. Matthew opens up his book this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Note the title, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Dropping down to verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. We have the title, we have the authority, we have the covenants all right there in chapter one, verse one. And then we have the mission of Messiah. What we have in the Gospel of Matthew is the birth certificate of God's Messiah. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're reading today. You see, Jesus is the long-foretold Messiah. He is the long-foretold Son of David. He's also divine, and he was sent here on a rescue mission. But the Pharisees want no part of that. However, Jesus shows them up for this third time, but they have no response. They can't say anything to him. Because it's very tough to refute truth from your own sacred texts that you claim to be experts in. Here's the thing, Christian. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we also have to live according to his word. Or we will stand in the same place. Someone may present our text to us and say, are you following it? Are you obeying? Why not? If you're not obeying, how can I know it's true and how can I know it's real? Think about your testimony as we interact with the Word. So you have these experts standing before Jesus. They can't recognize Him. They refuse to recognize Him. Because if they do, if they recognize Jesus Christ as Messiah, that takes away from their own power, their own prestige, and their own standing. But they certainly understand the truth of the Word of God. They just refuse to act on it. So they are pretenders. And pretenders cannot recognize Messiah. Now, how do God's people respond to this? How do God's people respond to the truth of the revealed Messiah in Scripture? Well, the Spirit led David to recognize Messiah several hundred years before he was born. That's the reality. Jesus could or excuse me, David could recognize Messiah. And so today, as the people of God, the people who claim to know and love Jesus Christ, we are spirit-led to recognize him and to worship him and obey him. If you struggle to worship and know the Jesus Christ of Scripture, then you have to ask yourself a question. Why? Why do I struggle in that way? The Holy Spirit affirms the truth in us about Jesus when we become his. We, we take God's Word, and the Holy Spirit then imprints God's Word on our hearts so we can live it out and obey it. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Recognize him. Well, no, you don't have to tell them that anymore because I'm going to put it in their hearts. We, as God's people, recognize our Lord and our Savior through the word, led by the Holy Spirit, and then we obey him out of love for what he's already done for us. We're not earning anything. It was already done. Jesus delivered the prize to us. We accept it, and we thank him for it, and then we worship him. Now, let's look at verse 46 and just see how this scene concludes today. Let me read that for you again. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, clears the field. The opponents of Jesus start to slink away, out of the light. It's sort of like, they're sort of like rats in a wood pile, right? When you disturb it, they try to get out of the light, get out of your sight. That's, that's what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests are doing. They cannot stand in the light anymore. There's going to be no more direct opposition to the teaching and authority of Jesus Christ in the temple. Just think about it. Who can stand before God's Messiah preaching God's word in God's temple? No one. And they cannot stand before him. Instead, the enemies will attempt an indirect approach. From this point forward, we see the opposition turn into betrayal and lies and bribery. It's insidious. But Jesus knows this. He knows it's coming. Nothing that's about to happen in the rest of the week ahead is a surprise to Jesus Christ. He is prepared, and yet he's standing firm. And he's preparing his people for what is to come. Now, we haven't reached Friday yet. I don't want to jump ahead. But we all know Sunday is coming, right? Now, if we want to take a picture of what Jesus is doing here, part of the problem is we think sometimes we have to defend Jesus, right? And I knew this guy when I was in college who was a great MMA fighter before MMA was a thing. If he got into a fight and I tried to defend him, I would just get into the way, right? I couldn't do anything for him. He was fast. He was strong. He was knowledgeable. He knew how to apply force. He also knows how to defuse situations. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. Sometimes we spend a lot of time, effort, and energy defending Jesus when what we really need to be doing is obeying Jesus. He doesn't need us to defend him. He's not some weak, passive Savior. He is in glory at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling and reigning. And his expectation is that we do what he says, that we obey him. So let me give you some things he doesn't need from us. He doesn't need his followers to jump on social media and to start posting mean-spirited debate things that defame the church. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need you retweeting things and, and posting things and attacking other people. He doesn't need that from his followers. That defames him. He also does not need his people to spend time, effort, and energy trying to reform the government and contend with political actors. He doesn't need that from us. Our Lord and Savior sets the boundaries of kings and nations. 
Our Lord and Savior is quite capable of appointing presidents and kings and prime ministers and senators and whatnot. He doesn't need us to engage and rage at them. He needs us to obey him, to take the gospel to the nations. He doesn't need a bunch of culture warriors that are running around pointing out things to boycott or ban over ideology or moralism. He needs his people to take his heart to the world. Love God, love others. That's what he demands and that's what he expects. And God's people proclaim who he is from Scripture. We tell people faithfully, in love, and with passion about the Jesus who saved us. Because he desires it all here. He desires it all recognize who Jesus Christ is. This, this Savior who lived a sinless life, who came down from heaven, who laid down his glory and became a human baby and lived this sinless life, died on the cross for us and rose again. And we're to take that to the world because that's the only way people can then hear, repent, and believe and be saved. As we conclude our time today, we need to note, pretenders cannot recognize the Jesus Christ of Scripture because they refuse to recognize him. The Bible presents a clear picture for us who Jesus is. Our job is to communicate that image to others so they can recognize who Jesus is and repent and believe. As those who claim to know Jesus Christ as his gathered church, we believe that recognizing Christ in our lives means submitting to his spirit revealed authority. So church, let's live like it. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. I want to talk you through our responses today. In believer, the question is simple for you. Which Jesus do you follow? Are you with the Pharisees and expecting a human Jesus you can manipulate and control? Or are you following the Messiah of Scripture? The one who is right now, at this moment in time, at the right hand of his Father in glory. The Jesus you follow dictates how you live your life and how you live your faith. This world is going to constantly offer up alternatives for you to place your trust in. Have you fallen prey to a false Jesus? Have you fallen prey to a Jesus you've created? You can tell if you have become, because you then become fixated on conspiracy theory stuff and political stuff and culture stuff instead of just obeying the word of God and loving your Savior. Take some time today. Assess where you are at. And do business with the Lord. The altar is open and it is available. And the Jesus Christ of Scripture is here to meet with you. Now, for some of you, you can't recognize a person you do not know. But you can meet him today. Jesus is precisely who the text describes him to be today. He is the divine son of God. He is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. He came down from heaven. He died on a cross for our sins because we are all sinners and we all need a Savior. And he rose again after three days according to what Scripture says. And you can know him today by admitting that you are a sinner, believing in him, believing what the Bible teaches about his work on the cross, and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. 
You can pray to him right now and ask him to save you and to tell him that you believe in him. Today is the day of salvation. Join the family of God. Reject a Jesus of your own creation and accept the Jesus Christ of Scripture. I'm going to pray and you respond however the Lord leads. But this altar is open to you now. This is our corporate prayer time. If you need to respond in faith to the message of the gospel, you can come and talk to me and I will walk you through that. If you need to talk to me about baptism or anything else, I'm here to pray with you. But this altar is open for you as well just to do business with the Lord today. I'm going to pray and you respond however the Lord leads. Let's pray.